Today's New Testament reading comes from Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stood, stopped at a house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me when we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I begin to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. Old Testament lesson comes from the book of Jonah, chapter 1, and verses 1 through 17. Let's hear God's word together. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. 
But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? From where do you come? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This isn't part of the sermon, but I just noticed this. Did you notice how Jimmy read for us about Peter realizing that the good news of God's grace was for the nations. And where did he realize that? When he was in the town of Joppa. And where was it that Jonah began to find out that indeed God cares greatly for the nations? It's when he went through the port city of Joppa and tried to flee from the presence of the Lord. Sometimes the Spirit of God does really interesting things in the Word of God, doesn't he? Well, now to our sermon proper. Let's look at three things along with the sign of Jonah this morning. First, the pagans. I'm going to give you a very alliterative kind of thing here. Can you bear that? First, the pagans' pious prayers. The pagans' profound penance pagan's powerful prophecy, and then finally, the sign of Jonah. All right, let's start with the pagan's pious prayers, the title of our sermon. That might sound a little strange. The pious prayers of pagans? Really? Well, one of the most obvious things about this first scene in the book of Jonah is the radical difference, right, between the pagan sailors and the Israelite prophet. You might expect 
a real difference between the pagan sailors and the Israelite prophet. If all you knew about Jonah was that he was a servant of Yahweh, what would you expect from him? Well, you'd expect him to be prayerful, pious, and prophetic. And you'd expect pagans to be prayerless. Or at a minimum, you'd expect them to be only prayerful in their sort of polytheistic way, right? Praying each to their own gods only. What about the moral behavior that you might expect? Well, you'd expect the prophet of God to kind of sparkle like a diamond, right? Against the dark backcloth of the pagan's godless behavior. Still, though, consider how different their, their attitude... Excuse me, I've lost my place. Oh, there we are. <laughs> You'd expect... What would you expect? You'd expect some kind of conflict morally between an upright Israelite and the hostile pagans around him. These would be all the ex- expectations if all you knew is you've got pagans and a prophet of God, right? But that's not what we get, and it surprises us in the book of Jonah. We have an Israelite prophet who has, of course, his Hebrew identity badge, and he has his framed certificate of his ordination of when he became a prophet. He's proud of these things, but while he's showing off for the pagans these markers of his official religious position and his prestige, what else is he doing? He's running away from the very presence of God. And then you have the pagans. And you have their prayers. Now look, when the storm hits, these pagans are definitely praying to their own gods, to false gods. You've got an international pagan crew, and verse 5, they're all praying in an idolatrous way. And that means that all of them are complicit in false religions, and these religions are designed to use spiritual forces to make their lives better, to get control for themselves, and in many cases to justify great wickedness. They're not innocent sailors, and yet still consider how different their attitudes are from Jonah's, the prophet of Israel. There's a storm, and even though they're tough, sea-tested sailors, they immediately realize what? That this is not just a normal storm. This is a supernatural storm. They instinctively know we can't fight this on our own. They know that whatever power is out there, they do not actually control such a God as this. They don't control the storm, and they don't have control over their own fate, even. They throw the ship's cargo overboard, and that means all of the profit that they hoped for on this merchant journey is now lost. It's a financial disaster. And now they're praying their hearts out, and they're begging for mercy from whatever God might have ears to hear and compassion to act. Jonah, verse 5, is down in the lower deck of the boat, and they can't believe that he's not praying. What are you doing, sleeper, they say. Get up. Come on. Pray to your God. 
And does Jonah pray to his God? No, he doesn't. In fact, before the pagans were praying to their own gods, but ultimately, who is the first to pray to the one true God, the God of Israel? Is it the Israelite prophet, the professional Christian, or is it these pagans? Verse 14, the first prayer to ascend to the God of heaven and earth, of sea and dry land, is from the mouths of these pagans. In fact, think of this whole first chapter as a series of calls and responses. That's kind of how the Bible works, actually. Lots of calls from God, responses from people. And first, the word of God, Israel's God, and the one true God, calls out to Jonah, verse 1. Jonah, son of Amittai, go, I have a mission for you. What's the response? Verse 3, Jonah flees, first to Joppa, and then off to Tarshish he goes, away from the presence of Yahweh. Yahweh calls again, verse 5, how? Through this storm. And while the pagans respond by calling out for mercy, Jonah responds by going below deck and falling asleep. Before Jonah ever speaks to his God, in this book, the pagans on the ship have turned from their own gods and have called on the name of Yahweh. I say Yahweh intentionally. This is the covenant name that God revealed to Israel, specifically his chosen people. And they're saying, verse 14, Yahweh, whenever you see L-O-R-D in all caps, it's this covenant name, Yahweh. Yahweh, spare us. Don't count us guilty. It was your prophet, after all, their reasoning with the Lord God. Your prophet told us to throw him overboard. Don't count us guilty for this. You, after all, Yahweh, are in charge of our lives and the sea and everything that would happen here. And so they've submitted in humility while Jonah continues to run from his God and never says a word to his covenant Lord. And guess what? The Lord God, the God of Israel, hears these pagans' prayers. They throw Jonah over, and the sea grows calm. And they live to tell the story. That's something. The pious prayers of pagans really stuns us in this book. But there's other things. The first scene ends with the pagans continuing to pray at the end of our chapter. And in these prayers, we hear not just pious prayers, but we hear profound penance from these pagans. That is, they want to make things right. They want to make sure that things are right between themselves and the God that they've just met, the God who has just saved them. The storm and then the way that it ceased, verse 16, did what to their emotions? It caused them to be terrified, to fear Yahweh, Israel's God. What do they do with this fear? They turn and they make sacrifices. See, they know that they're not innocent. They know this. Remember, the lot fell to Jonah when they were trying to figure out who's responsible for this. 
They know that it was Jonah's rebellion. They know that God is going after Jonah. But still, when they experience, when they confront the real presence of God in majesty as they do, they have this sense that they are guilty and broken as well. Does this remind you of anything? Another seafaring story that comes from our New Testament. Jesus and the disciples are in the boat. Rather, the disciples are in the boat. Jesus is on the shore. The disciples have been fishing all night. Jesus tells these experienced fishermen, hey, you've caught nothing? Just throw the nets on the other side of the boat. They say, really? We're the fishermen here. They do it. They catch a bazillion fish. And they almost sink under the weight of this bounty, this great catch. And what does Peter say when he experiences this this miracle? He says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful person. Now, the miracle didn't have anything to do with sin and repentance. But the mere fact that Peter knows he is living in the presence of the living God reveals to him how messed up and broken and sinful he is. Leads him to acknowledge that freely. And that's exactly what the pagan sailors do here. Even though they don't have instructions from the Hebrew scriptures about how they're supposed to go about making appropriate sacrifices, about where they're supposed to make these sacrifices, they know that they owe Yahweh their very lives. Despite their complicity in sin, he has saved them. And so it is their natural response to say, we've got to sacrifice. And what else? The pagans continue their profound penance by making vows to Yahweh, Israel's God. Not only are they admitting their guilt, but they're also promising to live in God's presence from there on out. Jonah, prayerless, is just constantly looking to flee God's presence. Pagans bump up into God's presence almost on accident. They experience it and then they promise to live the rest of their lives in God's presence. They're saying, Yahweh, Lord of Israel, God of the universe, clearly we can never flee your presence as this Jonah has shown us. But to whom else should we go anyway? Should we go back to our gods who couldn't save us? You have our lives in the palm of your hand. And so we will live in your presence, dreadful as that seems to be to us right now. You see what's going on here? First, the the pagans pray like Jonah should have. The pagans repent like Jonah should have. And then the pagans make sacrifices to deal with their guilt like Jonah should have. And then the pagans plan a new life of obedience to God like Jonah should be dedicated to in the first place. And then there's one more thing that these pagans do that Jonah should have. And what is it? Well, the third thing is the pagans' powerful prophecy. Did you notice in verse 6, the captain says something interesting. 
He's saying, Jonah, wake up and pray to your God. He says, who knows? Maybe your God will hear us, have compassion on us, and perhaps even save us. Maybe your God is different than all these gods we've been calling on, full of loving kindness and mercy, will hear our cries and save us. Isn't that something? The God of Israel sends a prophet to go and to prophesy the truth to a pagan city. And here the pagans on the ship, as Jonah's fleeing from that mission, the pagans have become prophets taking the prophetic message, as it were, right out of the mouth of God's prophet and pushing that prophet, who's running away from God, back towards the presence of Yahweh. There are a bunch of, you might call, appointments in the first chapter of this book, a bunch of sendings. Right at the beginning, God had appointed and sent Jonah to go and be his prophet. He doesn't go. Over and over, as Jonah is running away, you don't see it in the NIV, but the word here, over and over again, is appoints. Jonah, or God appoints, or sends things to prophesy, as it were, to Jonah, to call him back to his God and to God's covenant. Verse 4, he appoints a great wind and a violent storm. Verse 17, he ends up appointing a great fish. But here in the boat, these pagans are the prophets that Jonah was too faithless to be. Jonah's full name is Jonah ben Amittai, Jonah son of Amittai. And this means, this is funny too, Jonah's name means dove, son of Amittai means son of truth or son of faithfulness. In other words, this is the kind of guy that you can go to send news of peace, he's a dove, and news of truth that's in faithful keeping to God's own character and message. But our dove here, Jonah, is warring constantly against his God. He's no son of truth or faithfulness. And it's the pagans that surprise us by speaking the truth that Jonah just won't speak. The pagans have barely heard of Yahweh. And what's coming out of their mouths is far and away more like the character of Jonah's God than Jonah would ever bring to his own lips. Compassionate and sovereign, attentive to the cries of people for help and mercy, responsive to our repentance. Friends, the last thing we need to make sure we don't miss, and maybe the important thing, is the sign of Jonah. This book of prophecy is read and is preached and is proclaimed into our little worship service here in September of the year of our Lord, 2020. And it breaks into our experience to tell us something fresh and new. A couple of things, in fact. Number one, our God can and does make himself known in grace and glory to whoever he wants to. 
our God, makes himself known to whoever he wants to. Should you call yourself a Christian? Yes, you should. But never let Christian turn into the proud identity badge that you wear around with a boastful spirit. Don't let your conviction that the Holy Spirit is at work among us who bear the name of Christ in a special way leave you insensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people out there. Don't let it surprise you when the Holy Spirit is moving to draw people closer to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus. How dare we assume that the Spirit is not at work, subtly and wisely and sovereignly, leading many people step by step, prayer by prayer, to the Lord Jesus Christ. If we have the kind of spiritual pride that we see in Jonah, then ironically, we are the ones who have become spiritual outsiders while God, by his spirit, draws people in to his own presence who are more than happy to be there. Don't be more stingy. God help us. Don't be more stingy than the spirit of God. Number two, another sign of Jonah. Because the spirit of God made every person and made every person a deeply spiritual person, This means that there are spiritual longings and cries and prayers in your neighbor's heart and often on your neighbor's lips, clumsy as they might be. Prayers and longings that you need to take with the utmost seriousness. We were all, outside and inside, we were all made to worship. And our hearts will be searching for the proper aim of our worship until our hearts finally meet and rest upon the Lord Jesus. God heard the cries of these, pa- these pious pagans. Open your ears and listen to the spiritual longings of your neighbors. And then if you have the chance, perhaps you can say, These longings that you have, I have them too. And Jesus, I have found to be the most astonishing person because at the very same time that he fulfills my longings like no one else has been able to, he awakens in me new and fresh and deeper longings and promises by and by to fulfill those longings as well. Number three. Never forget this. If you are, by faith in Jesus Christ, a son or a daughter of Abraham, by faith, Abraham who himself was a pagan before he was called, we often forget that. Abraham who didn't know his right hand from his left hand spiritually, If you're a son or daughter of Abraham, don't forget that the Lord came to Abraham and began to answer his heart's longings, his greatest fears, his jumbled pagan prayers. And he answered those longings and prayers with himself. The Lord God walked with Abraham. 
befriended Abraham. Never forget that you and I and Abraham were these pagan sailors on the boat. Lost at sea, crying out for anyone who might save us. Folks, it's better to be a pagan sailor with a mouthful of pious prayers and powerful prophecy and with a heart that God is glad to hear than to be a proud prophet with a heart that's closed to God and to neighbor. Because overcoming our pagan hearts is not something God can't do. A heart closed off to God and neighbor, ugh, doesn't that sound like hell, right? But thanks be to God, he has befriended us in Jesus and he's pried open the shuttered gates of our hearts and opened them to himself in his good news and opened them to our neighbors in love and truth and mercy. Jesus, friends, is God's missionary sent to preach grace and truth to our pagan sailor hearts. And Jesus is our priest sent to pray for our pagan hearts. And Jesus is our prophet, God's prophet, to prophesy to our pagan hearts. And Jesus, most of all, is the face of God sent not to condemn us, but to befriend us, even though we were his enemies. And so it feels weird to say something like this in church, right? But let's imitate these pious pagans. Let's make our vows to follow our Lord Jesus as they did. Let's make our sacrifices of praise to him for all he's done. Let's turn from our pride and turn toward his patience and his power. And then let's watch and be, be stunned as he turns us full-hearted at last, open-hearted at last, toward our neighbor with prayers and with prophecy of our own as we have the privilege of ushering others perhaps back into the family and into the friendship of God. It is the most stunning miracle that you and I are Christians. And if we are ever to believe that God can make Christians out of our neighbors, those who love Jesus, we have to realize how much of a miracle it was that he took us and saved us and called us his own. Father, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations on all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for we have clung to Jesus as our only rock and our only redeemer. We bow in humility before his holy name, and we stand in his holy presence, clothed in his righteousness, and with hearts full and ready to love anyone in his name that we might come across. Commission us, we pray, to be prayers, to be repenters, to be humble prophets, and to be those who open the path back home to the heart of our Lord Jesus and walk that path ourselves, hand in hand with our neighbor. Thank you for the marvelous privilege of belonging to Jesus. 
Help us to make good on that privilege as individuals and as a community together. We ask it for Jesus' sake and for the sake of our neighbor. Amen.